0: But I'm glad we're here, and I'm glad that we're able to worship the Lord this morning. You know, there's a lot of places in the world that can't worship openly. But I praise God that we're able to do that, at least for now. And so as we go to the Lord, let's just be grateful for who he is and for him allowing us to come to worship him today. So let's let's pray. Father, we confess to you that we do need you every hour. We need you every moment, Lord You are the great God. You are the king above all gods. And we bow only to you. At least, Lord, that's our intention. Lord, we're so easily distracted. We're so easily diverted. But we thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness. That when we do sin, Lord, your Lord tells us if we sin, not when, but if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That's you, Lord Jesus. So we thank you for your provision for us. And now, Lord, we thank you by your spirit. Ask, God, that you would help us, that you would help us to open our minds and help us understand what your word has to tell us today, that we might truly live faithful lives unto you. And we thank you, Father, for these things, what you'll do in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me make a statement this morning that as we start out, if I was a betting man, now I'm not a betting man because every time I bet I lose, but if I was a betting man, I would say that it's safe to say that practically Everybody knows who Joshua was. Because all I have to do is say the word Jericho, and we all know. See, Joshua and company marched around the walls six days, one time. And on the seventh day, seven times. And then the trumpets blew, and the shouts of the warriors, and the walls fell flat. And through the power of God, what was considered an impregnable city-state, was no match for Yahweh and Israel. And Jericho was the first city to fall. I'm getting ahead of myself. (laughs) We need to back up, though, and look at the time right before the Lord led Joshua, and Joshua led the people across the Jordan River into the promised land to take over, to dispossess the pagan nations in Yahweh's sacred space. If you were here last week, you remember that I mentioned that we were officially at the end of Moses giving the Torah, which is the teaching of God's ways to God's people. It's now time for Moses to literally step aside, for as we will be reminded today, Moses is not allowed to enter the promised land. Let me emphasize, not allowed to enter. By God himself, he gave that prohibition. So a leader is needed, and Joshua is that leader. But why Joshua? What was it about him that caused Moses to choose him? Or was it Moses that chose him? Today, we're going to see a death to this man, Joshua, that I personally was amazed when I did the preparation for this message. And my prayer is that for all of us, by the Lord's strength, we will emulate just some of Joshua's faithfulness to the Lord in the days to come. Our passage for today is Deuteronomy 31, 1 to 13. Found on page 192 in your pew Bible if you need that number. And so what I want to do today with our passage is to simply summarize it so that we can have more time to spend on on examining this man, Joshua. And so in verses 1 to 8, Moses explains to Israel that he must stay on this side of the Jordan River, unable to enter the promised land. He implied that he was too old to enter the land because he was reached, he had reached a spry age of 120. Also, the Lord permanently disqualified Moses from entering the land. See, decades prior to when Moses was speaking to the people, the Lord told Moses to speak to a rock, and he had to speak to it. He struck it. See, the people needed water, and they were complaining again. Well, Moses got caught up in an angry moment and struck the rock. Water gushed out, and the people had water. But God said that Moses failed to treat as holy in the sight of the people. And because Moses had to stay behind, though, he reminds the people of their God-given task to kill every living being in the land the Lord promised to give them. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, and every animal. Moses also reminds the people that the Lord will go before them and arrange things so that Israel will be able to accomplish this task. See, Israel is going to take the place of the pagans who are living in that land, in Yahweh's land. And by way of reminder, the Lord told Israel, as we describe things, to commit genocide on the pagan nations. They were living in the land, and they were extremely, extremely wicked. The nations practiced unspeakable evil and the Lord wanted them gone. This was Yahweh's land. This was the Lord's sacred space. And he was going to use Israel to make that happen. Like the Lord has done down through the ages and even to our day, the sovereign Lord raises up one nation to punish another nation. And so let me offer a word of encouragement to us in our present circumstances. The Lord told us in Matthew 24, 6, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, see to it that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Now we've heard of many rumors of wars throughout our time since we've been a country, and we've also engaged in wars as well. And so here we are again, apparently at the brink of another world war with the heart of it between Russia and Ukraine. And with all the info, true and false, swirling around us, the Lord tells us not to be alarmed. Hear the Lord's word through David's testimony in Psalm 32, 6-7. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And so regardless of the reason for this impending war, our Lord tells us to not be alarmed. And ultimately, this impending war is in his sovereign hands. Let's take refuge in him. And so Moses reminds Israel of their recent military victories as well of what I had called the Syog campaign, where Israel soundly defeated the Amorite enemies on two fronts, one led by Sion and one led by Og. Don't you love that name, Og? Part of the spoils, of course, was the land. And Israel took their land, which just so happened to lie outside of the land that God was going to give them as promise. And so, as I mentioned last week, the Lord gave his people land before he gave them land. Isn't God good to his people? And so Moses says to Israel, you can accomplish the mission. Be strong. Be courageous. Don't be afraid because the Lord is going before you. He's going to be with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. And Moses continues. And now Israel, I present to you Joshua. And then he gives Joshua the same encouragement he just gave all of Israel. He turns to Joshua and he says, Joshua, be strong and courageous for you will go with this people into the land the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. You think Joshua needed some encouragement? As I mentioned a bit ago, we are going to come back to Joshua in a minute, but we need to see a little bit about Moses' emphasis here on the Torah, the book of the law, in verses 9 to 13. Moses wrote down the entire book of Deuteronomy, this book of the law, and he gave it to the priests and the elders. He charged the leadership to read it to everybody in the nation every seven years during the Feast of Sukkot. And, of course, that's the Feast of Tabernacles, and we're going to be celebrating some of that this coming Saturday. So a major part of Israel hearing the book ought to be obvious by now. He has told the people over and over again why they need to obey the Lord. The Lord wants the nation to obey him, described as living out a loyal relationship to the Lord. Not perfect, but loyal. The nation is to hear the Torah and learn to fear the Lord as long as you live in the land. And of course, the implication is as soon as they start living a lifestyle that's contrary to the Torah, What's God going to do to them? Kick them out of the land. Their standard was the Torah. The Torah was to be their plumb line. It was to be the standard by which all things were to be measured against. See, divine authority was to continue to govern God's people long after Moses left the scene. And with that, Deuteronomy 31, 1 to 13 is complete. We just covered the entire passage. But the message is not finished. Because we know what's coming. We're going to discover this man, Joshua. Now, we begin this message today with the picture that everybody paints of Joshua. For after all, there's an entire book written about his conquest and exploits. Have you read it lately? And for all who have read Joshua, though, we know that Jericho was not the only place that Joshua and company conquered. It was only the very first place. And when Israel finished their mission about 7 years later, Joshua challenged the people to serve the Lord only. He says this in Joshua 24:15. "And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, either the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land that you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What about you?" And so I thought it was good to introduce Joshua to us as Moses introduced Joshua to them. I want us to see possibly why Joshua was ultimately the Lord's choice to lead the people now that Moses was passing off the scene. And what message will be complete without a challenge to us as his people to apply his truth to our lives? So That's where we're going today. Remember what scripture is for. Paul told Timothy this. In his last letter, his last correspondence, he would ever write. He wrote this to his mentee Timothy. He says, 2 Timothy three sixteen and seventeen, all Scripture, which includes Deuteronomy, which includes Joshua, is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. But let's not forget the very purpose, so that the man, the woman, the young person of God may be complete, equipped." For every what, finish it. Good works. The scriptures be taken and used that we might do good works with them. It's not just to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. See, we can't be content with just gaining some facts and hearing a few anecdotal stories and thinking that this is a good use of God's time and ours. We must put God's word to use in our lives. And so we're going to see that as Joshua was faithful and by the strength he provides that we too, for the glory and for the sake of Christ, that we too can be faithful as Joshua was. Now, you might be surprised as I was, or maybe not, that Joshua is not really mentioned all that much in the first five books of Moses. And though Joshua doesn't come on the scene all that often, he does come on at strategic points in the story, in the narrative. And the first time that Joshua was mentioned was about a month after the Lord delivered his people of Egypt. See, Israel had their first taste of warfare at that point. Moses appoints Joshua to do two things to choose an army, to pick the army, and then to lead them in a battle against the Amalekites. We'll find that. In Exodus 17. Now, this is a very tall order here. The Amalekites, according to some, had a long track record of a nomadic, aggressive, being a violent people. They were skilled in drawing the sword against anyone they wanted to terrorize. And that's one side of the battle. On the other side, you have about 600,000 men, women, and even babies out in the open, and none of them have military experience. Because where were they? They were slaves in Egypt. Without a doubt, the only weapons that Israel had were those that they collected from the dead Egyptians. But even without experience and with the willingness to take a risk to lay his life on the line, Joshua stepped forward. Now, we know the end of the story, but when Joshua was appointed, he didn't. But we also know the up story, don't we? As in Moses and Ben and her on the mountain. As long as Moses held his arms in the air, the Joshua-led army prevailed. So really, who was it that won the battle? It wasn't Joshua. It was the Lord. And though we don't know how old man Moses first noticed young buck Joshua in the mass gaggle of hundreds of thousands of Israelites, it was no secret that after that battle, they were brought up close and personal in a mentorship relationship that lasted for decades and ultimately having Joshua as a successor to Moses. The next time we encounter Joshua would be a few weeks later, only this time as they were now at the foot of Mount Sinai. When the Lord brought them to the foot of the mountain, it had been three months now since God delivered them from, from Egypt. After they prepared themselves, now with all Israel at the foot of the mountain, Yahweh thunders out his 10 words, and the people are scared to death. They stand far away while Moses meets with the Lord. And then in Exodus 24, we find Moses telling the people what the Lord told him. They built an altar, and they established the covenant by sacrifice. So now let's pick up the narrative in Exodus 24, 9 to 14. If you want to follow along in the manuscript or or turn in Scripture, you can do that. Exodus 24, 9 to 14. And then Moses and Aaron and Nahab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel, that's God. They beheld God and they ate and they drank. Can you imagine having a meal with God? That's amazing. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. Again, the Torah. So Moses rose, notice what's next, with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us and we will return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. And for the next 40 days, we find Joshua, now referred to as Moses' assistant, between the top of the mountain where Moses is and the elders below. Literally, Joshua is alone, waiting on his mentor for over a month by himself. Question, what do you think was going on in Joshua's heart and mind at that point? Could it be that a fire for God was brewing in his belly? He was only a little ways away from God. Well, the next time we see Joshua is with him on his face before the Lord. After the horrible idolatry of the golden calf and the destruction that ensued with over 3,000 people of Israel having been put to the sword, we read this in Exodus 33, 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Once again, we encounter Joshua's relationship to Moses as his assistant now. And surely Joshua had become Moses' right-hand man. So what was happening now in the heart of Joshua? What was beginning to stir there? In short, this young man was in the process of being transformed. He saw the Lord work through him to keep the Amalekites at bay, where Joshua witnessed Moses on the mountain with his hands raised and the Lord giving him victory. Joshua witnessed the way the people rebelled against the Lord in the golden calf and how Moses interceded for the people. Joshua's heart was beginning to get filled full regarding the power and the holiness and the tender compassion of the Lord. It would be a little over a year later that we would see Joshua again. And this time, he was selected as one of the 12 spies to go into the land to to check it out. The spies were to enter the land and make an assessment of all that was going on there and then bring back a report. But 40 days later, the spies returned to the camp. Ten of them gave scary stories, and they concluded that Israel could not go into the land. It was impossible. But Joshua and Caleb had confidence in Yahweh. Joshua and Caleb saw what the other 10 saw. I'm sure they were a little bit uneasy about things. They saw giants, because there were giants. But Joshua and Caleb saw him who is invisible. In the midst of the entire nation, now panicked and greatly now desiring to turn to Egypt, with Moses and Aaron on their faces, Joshua and Caleb gave this report. It's found in numbers 14 seven through nine here's what Joshua said to the people the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land if the Lord delights in us he will bring us to this land and give it to us a land that flows with milk and honey only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear for the people of the land for they are bred for us their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us do not fear but the people were even more incensed with this good report. They even took up stones to stone Joshua and Caleb. It was only the glory of the Lord appearing in the tent is what saved Joshua and Caleb's life from their stoning. So once again, we see Joshua put his life on the line for the sake of Moses and even more importantly, for the sake of the glory of God. see Joshua's name mentioned once again in this story. And this time it's when Moses prays to the Lord after the Lord permanently disqualifies Moses from entering the land because he failed to treat the Lord as holy in the sight of the people. God told Moses to speak to the rock in a fit of an anger. what did he do? He struck the rock twice. But let's listen in on the dialogue between the Lord and Moses in Numbers 27, 12 to 20. It's an amazing passage here. It's cool that, you know, when when God Inspires the people to write down the prayers. I love it. The Lord said to Moses, go up into this mountain of Abiram and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you've seen it, you shall also be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah and Kadesh in the wilderness of Zen. Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be a sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And so here's what we have. Over time, as a young man growing up, Joshua grew and developed into a suitable candidate to succeed Moses. Indeed, we find Joshua, a faithful man. As you may have guessed, as you've kind of seen the the print there, there's an acronym associated with Moses' assistant. You know me, I love acronyms. So let me explain this. See, first, Joshua was faithful. The word acronym is is, uh, the first letter of the acronym is faith. He was faithful, I mean. He was faithful to carry out Moses' instructions. Again, the first letter in our faith acronym. When Moses commanded Joshua to form an army to fight against the Amalekites, there's no indication of hesitation. In Exodus 17.10, so Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. When Joshua was chosen for yet another dangerous mission, spying out the land, he went willingly without a personal agenda. Rather, it was the Lord's agenda he was, he was after. Again, there were 10 reports that spelled defeat. But in reality, it was fear-based rebellion. Joshua and Caleb were on God's errand, and the errand was on conquest and victory. How can we defeat these guys? But it was very apparent that the 10 had their own agenda of self-preservation. See, Joshua was faithful. And he was also available. that's the A in our faith acronym. See Joshua made the time for the things of God. See Joshua didn't have to be near Moses when he came down, and Joshua or Moses chose Joshua along with seventy elders to go up, but he was there. He made the time to be close to Moses. Remember, Joshua was a young man; he was in his twenties. The elders were called elders. why because they were. Elder. Joshua was young. See, these elders were older and wiser, supposedly, in the nation. And when Moses took Joshua on the mountain, he had no idea, did he, what Moses wanted him for? And Moses left Joshua halfway up the mountain by himself. What was all that about? The way I see it, during those 40 days, Joshua made himself available to serve the Lord and Moses in obscurity. See, Joshua could have gone down from the mountain, couldn't he? But he didn't quit. He remained in place for 40 days, over a month. And by the way, there was no indication that Joshua took provisions with him. So what do you think happened up there? He got hungry, and he also got a little thirsty. And so it was probably a miracle that God had him survive just like Moses on the mountain. And so it was very apparent that when Moses and Joshua came down, there was more than just one stomach rumbling. Joshua was faithful, and he was available. And then he took initiative as well. That's the I in our faith acronym. Remember the good report he gave to the people. He and Caleb took action in the midst of the rage and the fear and the extreme emotion Israel experienced. The people were in the process of choosing a leader to head back to Egypt. Moses and Aaron were on their faces before the people. And without a doubt, they were praying, Lord, do something. Help help us. We're going to be destroyed here by this mob. And so the Lord used Joshua and Caleb as an answer to their prayers. And so Joshua and Caleb gave a strong fourfold admonishment to these people. Do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. What does that mean? We're going to eat them up like a piece of cake. The Lord is going to be on our side, and we are going to defeat them really, really easily. Their protection is removed. That's the third thing. Protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Then number four, again, don't be afraid. But the people were too worked up to hear it. The people were ready to stone Joshua and Caleb. And once again, Joshua risked his life. And this time, it was trying to help God's people. It took a supernatural act for the Lord to protect them from harm. And the bottom line here is that the Lord's or Joshua's fear of the Lord was greater than any fear he had of man. The strength of Joshua's faith in Yahweh overwhelmed any fear he and Caleb might have had from the people. And so T in our acronym, stands for teachability. As a faithful man, Joshua was teachable. And this aspect goes hand in hand with Joshua's initiative. But the focus is what the Lord taught Joshua. See, in order for Joshua to take the initiative, he had to learn from the Lord how to handle things. Indeed, the Lord strengthened Joshua on the inside. For who was Joshua at that point? He was a kid. He was 20-something. And he powerfully stood up to what we today would sometimes call the establishment. Against the 10 who were doubtless older and wiser, in quotes, than Joshua and Caleb. But Joshua spent time in the Lord's presence before the crisis hit. Joshua was in silence those 40 days on the mountain in an unexpected state of fasting. He witnessed how Moses handled the sin of the people and their idolatry, how he must have wept in the knowledge of the Lord's forgiveness due to Moses praying for the people. Certainly, there was a great movement in his heart. He had such a thirst for God as he lingered in his presence in the tent of meeting even after Moses left. He was taught by the Lord. In those powerful times of waiting for the Lord, Joshua was taught of the Lord because Joshua served the Lord in obscurity. The Lord gave Joshua power publicly. Because Joshua was teachable, he received the Lord's instruction. And that's why he was able to take the initiative that he did in the midst of the chaos, the bad reports, and the threats of Israel to return to Egypt. And finally, Joshua was faithful because he had a heart. For God, that's the H in our acronym. Listen to the Lord's assessment of this servant in the aftermath of the scary spy incident. The Lord stepped in with his punishment of the nation. He declared that out of the entire nation of way more than half a million people, only two were to cross the Jordan River into the land of promise. Here's Yahweh's assessment of them as found in Numbers 32:12: They wholly followed the Lord. It's like with a whole heart. So what can we make of Joshua? He was a faithful man. He was Moses' disciple. He proved himself to be a trustworthy man. And the Lord entrusted the nation into Joshua's capable hands. For as the Lord was going before the people, preparing the way for Israel to uh, dispossess the nations, so Joshua was going to follow right behind the Lord, and the people were going to follow right behind Joshua. They were ready. So now it's our turn. As Joshua was faithful, so the Lord has called us, his people, to be faithful as well. Now We just studied Joshua, whom God called to lead a nation of Israel, filling huge shoes of Moses. You might be asking, how can that apply to me? (laughs) I'm not leading a million people. Well, the simple answer is, if you're in the family of God this morning, If you've been reconciled to the king, then God has called you to lead. Let that sink in. He's called you to lead, called all of us to lead. He has called all of us to be faithful. How so? The answer is found in Jesus' final instructions to his disciples and to us by extension, Matthew 20, 18 to 20. And Jesus came to them. He said, all authority. How much does that authority is that? All. All means all. That's all means. All authority in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples. That's the imperative. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus, the one who had all authority in heaven and on earth, has the right to tell his people what to do. Full stop. He told his would-be disciples in Luke 9.23. And he said to all of those standing around him, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, how often? Daily and follow me. That's the rock solid foundation upon which every Christian stands. If we are carrying our crosses, if we were in the first century, everybody would know where we're going, and we weren't coming back. We were going to be nailed to that. Jesus said, in essence, you are dead to the world if you're going to follow me. We are following the crucified one, and that's the picture Jesus is painting. But here is the glorious thing about being a Christian. We're new creatures in Christ. I don't see a whole lot of smiles. We're new creatures in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. You've missed it for dead. And behold, the new has come. All things are new. The old life is gone. We have a new life. We have a new identity. Do you believe that? We live under Jesus' authority and his protection. This life is not what we live for, whether we have a little or a lot, whether we think we have a little influence on others or a lot. What matters is that we belong to Jesus. He bought us with his blood, and that means he owns us. And now we willingly give ourselves to him, for he offered himself so willing for us. And so we have the tremendous privilege, don't we, of developing a life of faithfulness to the Lord. To use that very same acronym, faithfulness. The truth is that we are all leaders in some way, shape, or form, all of us, in the simplest form. Here's what it is, and we know this. Leadership is influence, is it not? Influence with intentionality. Whether we influence one as like a little baby, or multiplied thousands, the Lord Jesus has called us to intentionally influence others for his sake and for his glory. To the lost, those who live in rebellion against the king, we speak the truth because we love them. Paul says speak the truth in love. That's he's talking about fellow believers. We speak the truth to nonbelievers because we love them. Because we know what happens to nonbelievers, they're not going to appreciate it. But we are to speak the truth to them. Because we love them. We involve ourselves in the lives of others. We live the love of God and the truth of God in front of them because we love the Lord. We don't seek accolades from them or from anyone in the here and now. We seek to serve the Lord regardless of how the unsaved treat us. We've got to get this. To the saved, we speak truth in love. We live together in love and unity. We make disciples of Jesus teaching them to obey all that he's taught us and commanded us. For after all, to obey the Lord means that we love him. If we are new creatures in Christ, this is what we are to be about. And so we are to live faithfully unto him, like Joshua. As disciples of Jesus, we are to be faithful. And this means we carry out the agenda, not our own. As new creatures in Christ, where is his agenda to be found? We find his agenda here. We don't serve our own agenda. We serve his. Every place we see a command, we obey it. Now, of course, we've got to understand the context as we're learning a Bible study fellowship, also on Wednesday nights. But when we see a command of the Lord understood rightly, we are to quickly obey it. We're to ask our brothers and sisters, help me to obey it. Pray with me. Check up on me. And we ask the person on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights or whenever we get together, how you doing in fill in the blank? See, this ought to be standard conversation topics when we come together, right? Ought to be. That is part of true fellowship. Availability is our second letter in our acronym. Like Joshua, we're to carve out space and time in order to do what he tells us. Because again, we're not living for this life. We're living for him. What marks what things mark a difference between somebody who actively follows Christ and who does not? First and foremost that I have found is the word choice, C-H-O-I-C-E, choice. I must make the choice to do what he would have me do, even if my emotions don't serve me. Now, of course, none of us struggle with this, do we? The best athletes in the world struggle with this. The finest musicians struggle with this. Pastors every week struggle with this, prepared messages. We all struggle. That's why choice is huge. Make the choice. Make the choice. And I found the difference between one who actively follows Christ and one who doesn't consistently and simply practices the basics of the Christian life. What are the basics? Living out the truth of Christ as the center of one's life. Everything that a Christian is and has is part of the basics of the Christian life. Christ is the center of our lives. All decisions, activities, possessions, all that we have and are, and have Christ at the center of it. Obedience to Christ is one's highest priority. Again, obedience demonstrates that we love him. God's word and prayer, fellowship, witnessing to nonbelievers, all of these things are the basics of the Christian life. You carve out time for this. See, for new creatures in Christ, we must take these things into account. Now, we're, it's, all these things are going to be different from person to person according to their abilities of time and things like that, and, and work schedules and stuff, but we must make these things a priority. All these things are important. Initiative is the third letter of our lives as faithful followers of Christ. So what is initiative? It simply means, and we know this, make the first move. Be the first to do it. Now, I don't want to be the first. Yes, you do. (laughs) You want to be the first? In your life as a Christian, what areas of your life can you need and do you need to make the first move? For example, can you be the first to speak for God in the conversations that you have? Topics like God's truth about social issues. Seeking to plant gospel seeds or encouragement to fellow bearers, image bearers of God. Can you make the first move to do it? Can you open your face and say a word before somebody else does? Or how about doing tangible things to demonstrate his love and care for others, regardless of their spiritual condition? The truth is, we cannot live a Christian witness by osmosis, can we? And what I mean by that is, so many of us, we just think, well, I'm a Christian. It's just kind of, kind of ooze out of my pores, right? just going to be there, just going to be here, and they're going to know I'm a Christian, right? Ain't Wrong answer. See, we need to send it forth. We need to be the first to bring up things in a spiritual conversation. We need to be the first to act. We need to make the first move toward reconciling someone you have a disagreement with. And like with Joshua, also, the T is teachability. It's a hallmark of maturity in our relationships with Christ and with one another. We all know this, but when you hear it again for the first time, the only one who knows everything is the Lord, and the Lord ain't us, right? It's so easy, though, to forget this, especially when I'm right. is that right? true? So easy to forget it. But what is that? Pure and simple, cry. That's why it's vital that I develop a close walk with the Lord in obscurity. See, I found that when I'm not practicing a close walk with the Lord, it is so easy for me to be proud. So difficult to put pride down. So what is a surefire way to put our pride down regarding this, faith, this vital aspect, of being faithful in the body of Christ? Develop trusting relationships with one another. See, the greater the level of our trust the better we're going to be able to hear the tough things from other people. When someone who's concerned about us attempts to teach us about something, what do we do? What do we do? We learned about this in Wednesday nights. James 119 tells us, know this, my beloved brothers. Let everyone be be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to get angry. We have that backwards, don't we, (laughs) so often. Let's take what the other person is telling us into consideration. Just because the other person says something doesn't mean you have to do it, right? But that person is concerned for you. Give the other person the benefit of the doubt. Consider your relationship with that person to be a thing of value. Take in what he or she says and then make a wise, prayerful decision regarding the info. And finally, H is for heart both for the Lord and for his people. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 comes to mind here. He says, do nothing out of selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, if we have a heart for others, for the sake and for the glory of Christ, the person in front of us will be more significant than we are. We consider the interaction with this person not an interruption or a nuisance, but a divine appointment. The person in front of us is a valuable imager of God and so much more so as a brother and sister in Christ. As we count others more significant than ourselves, in compassion and in love and in servanthood, we will work to meet their needs. Sometimes it will be tough love. You know what I'm talking about when I say tough love, right? Other times it will be, I am going to give everything I have to meet your need personally. And then all points in between. See, it's here we must rely upon the Lord to give us the wisdom and discernment to to meet that need of that person. But what I want most of all, and I'm sure you do as well, is to hear God's assessment of us, like Joshua heard from the Lord, but for us on the day of judgment. Well done, good and faithful servant. Faithfulness. This was the life of Joshua. And this is what what the Lord would have us imitate. Now, as I land this plane, let me remind us of the lyrics of Steve Green's song, Find Us Faithful, for it fits so well here. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. Let the fire of our devotion Light their way. May the footprints that we leave lead them to believe, and the lives we live inspire them to obey. Oh, may all that come behind us find us faithful. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you recognize who we are. You remember our frame, you remember that we are but dust. And you treat us with such grace, such compassion, such such mercy. Lord, we don't get it. We don't understand it. Because, Lord, you are the God of wonders. You're beyond our galaxies. You hold the galaxies in your hand. You're outside of, of everything you've created. But you're also intimately acquainted with us. You've invited us, Lord, to have a relationship with you. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that when you hung on the cross... You made that possible. All of our sin was placed upon you. And Lord, we no longer have to worry about sin management. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us a power of the resurrection in our lives so that we don't have to sin. I thank you, Lord, that you can help us and cause us to be faithful, to be available, to take initiative in our spiritual life and the lives with others, to be teachable, and to have a heart that when it's all said, all, all said and done, that, Lord, you're going to look at that and you're going to tell us well done. That's what we want more than anything. Really. So, Lord, we commit our souls to you. We commit ourselves to you. We commit this time to you, and I ask, God, that you'd help us. Fill us with your spirit. Guide us, lead us. Help us, Lord, to be that witness you called us to be. And, Lord, we now turn our attention to yet a couple more acts of worship. I pray, Lord, that these acts of worship will be pleasing in your sight. Thank you, Father, for these things and we'll give you the praise and the honor and the glory because you so richly and alone deserve it in Jesus' name.